Hey, Park Hill Church family, Evan Wickham here. I pray you are doing well. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, I am currently sitting at a desk right next to my bed, and it is Wednesday, March 25th. It's a beautiful afternoon, and I'm really excited to introduce the content that you're about to hear. But before I do that, I want to remind you that we are embracing a new rhythm as a church called Together at Home. In light of all that's going on in our world and out of respect uh, to our government and respect for the vulnerable, we are moving into a new season right now. And it comes in three pieces. Number one, we are meeting as communities over Zoom, Zoom communities. So we've been big on community as a church from the beginning, and now we're leaning deeper and leaning harder into that. And so if you're not part of a community and you're listening to this, we invite you to enjoy the the intimacy of digital community. Uh, if you want to know what that looks like and how to download Zoom and how to get involved in one, please go to parkhillsd.church. We would love to help you uh, get set up. Number two, Sunday morning live worship. So we are streaming Sunday morning at 10, live worship from the Wickham home. And last week was our first one. We learned a lot. And this next week, we're going to involve our kids and... Um, read scriptures. A couple of our teenagers are going to read scriptures. So it'll be family, a family leading uh, families in worship. So hope you can join us for that. I'm very excited. We were even talking about having our little kids, our smallest kids sing the B-I-B-L-E. So if you have children, that should be fun. So Zoom communities, Sunday worship, and number three is daily prayer meetings over Zoom. Every day at noon, it's been amazing. This week, it's been so life-giving. Dozens and dozens of people gathering over Zoom through the website to pray for one another and to read scripture over each other and to hear the voice of God and to speak prophetically over one another. We hope you can join us. There's tons of room. Go to parkhillsd.church and click the Zoom prayer gathering button at noon, Monday through Saturday, not Sunday because those are the days of worship, but Monday through Saturday, join us for prayer. So Zoom prayer meetings, Zoom communities, and Sunday live worship. We look forward to gathering again together in person. We like I am grieving the loss of physical presence in this time. It's really getting me. But for now, we're doing the most, making the most with what we have. And so we hope you can join us together at home. So for the content, uh, I had a conversation with Dr. Tim Mackey earlier today, and it was in a live webinar. So there were like 60 some odd participants that were asking live Q&A. And the main questions we had for Dr. Tim Mackey, where did the Bible come from? What does it mean that the Bible has authority? Like, what do we mean when we say the Bible has authority over us? And then finally, Tim Mackey, he really weighed in profoundly on the current pandemic we're facing with COVID-19 and how the Bible speaks to the chaos that we see all around us right now. And I think uh, you're going to be very encouraged. So without any further delay, here it is, uh, the webinar convo with Tim Mackey. We are, we are recording. Oh my goodness, everybody. Hello, hello. Uh, this is a live webinar uh, with Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. And uh, hi, Tim. Hey, hello, Evan. Hey, yes. Tim, you're at home. I'm at my home. Yep. A thousand miles between us. Yep. Um, as the attendees keep coming in yep. through the website, yeah. um, we will just do introductions. And uh, 
you guys, uh, this will be on the podcast later and it'll be on YouTube as well. Um, this came about because Tim was going to go on vacation in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. Spring break with my yeah. family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so instead, um, no one's really doing that right now because of yeah. uh, unforeseen circumstances. Yeah. And so Tim was going to come and preach at Park Hill and do something on the scriptures. And we're, so we are adapting and we're doing this, which is going to also be on the scriptures. And it's actually, I'm kind of giddy. My tech nerd side mm-hmm. is, <laughs> is uh is getting pumped about the possibilities of what what's going to happen um so tim agreed graciously thank you tim i know your time is valuable you guys are making incredible resources for the global church at the bible project hmm. and so he set aside an hour in lieu of preaching at park hill he's going to have a conversation with us and it should be really good uh those that are here um just know that there is a q a feature if you type in a question uh, later on, hopefully, if we have time, uh, we're going to be able to see your questions and everybody can upvote. It's like a little like button. You can like the questions and the ones at the top, we can probably get around to having Dr. Tim Mackey answer at the end. So I'm actually really excited. We'll see how, how this goes. Um, yeah. Uh, Tim, mm-hmm. who are you and why are you doing what you're doing with all the cool things that yeah. you're doing things with? <laughs> um. Let's see. Well, I'm a guy from Portland, and uh, I grew up here in Portland, and um, had a long exile away from Portland um, to go to graduate school uh, in, in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, uh, I had a, a pretty radical life change experience when I started following Jesus when I was uh, about to turn 20 years old, and uh, I just grew up as a skateboarder. I don't know if I was like a punk skateboarder. I did a lot of vandalism. So, <laughs> so I'm sure people thought of me as in not very good terms. So anyway, um, but so it was a, a local skate park here that's run by followers of Jesus. And um, that ministry uh, introduced me to the story of Jesus in a way that I had never heard it before by people that were my peers. And um, so uh, within that first year of following Jesus, I decided to go to college. I had no plans to do so, but I decided to after that. And so I ended up in like my second semester in a how to study the Bible class at a Christian college here in town. And just I felt like the universe, the whole universe opened up. And that began um, uh, a long time, like 10 more years of being in school. Oh, fun. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. And uh, so uh, I just fell in love with biblical languages, the culture, the language, the literature of the Bible. And um, so I mostly was teaching in either seminary or church context. And then a friend of mine who I met at that skate park ministry, John Collins, had been making short animated explainer videos as a company business mostly for tech clients. And so he he pitched the idea to me to take all the stuff I'd been learning and to use the medium that he had, he had kind of gotten expertise in to make these videos. And so we worked on a couple of videos and in May of 2014, we started a YouTube channel, (laughs) which is what everybody aspires to do, I suppose. (laughs) So I don't know. Anyway. And uh, um, so we started a crowdfunded, 
nonprofit animation studio. And um, uh, we're now in season six of our content, and we've been able to make 150 videos on all the books of the Bible, themes in the Bible, and uh, it, they're getting translated into other languages now. And there you go. Yeah. But yeah. I get to study the Bible a lot and yeah. then write about what I'm learning and talk with my friend John about it and make cool stuff. So it's a great Yeah. Game. Thank you for what you have uh, set out to do. I know that our church kind of grew up on Bible Project videos. Um, <laughs> I remember, I, well, I my first month of seminary uh, was the month you released the first video, Heaven and Earth. Oh, yes. And I remember yes, Gary, yeah. Gary brought that into cohort. He was all giddy. And, uh, <laughs> and he played it. He's like, isn't this amazing? I can't mm. believe what's about to happen with them. Um, and look what happened. Yeah. Look um, but yeah, so you were going to come and mm -hmm. speak to our church. We're in, we're in the middle of a series on 1 Corinthians. Yeah. And we were going to take a break, intentionally take a break from 1 Corinthians to do a, a, a Sunday on, on Word and then a Sunday on the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and on, on the day you came, it would be about Word, Scripture, and how, how are the Scriptures, God's Word, come to us? How, is, how do we think yeah. about that? It's, what do we mean when we say a thing like that? Yeah, exactly. And and so the three the three questions that we kind of broke down for this conversation is number one, like where did it come from? Mm -hmm. um, and then number two, like is it really like when we say the Bible has authority over me and my body, like it's mm. <laughs> incredibly um, confusing and offensive. Mm. It can be like how do mm -hmm. how does the Bible's authority even work? Mm -hmm. And then and then we can turn the corner at the end. And this is the new piece that we weren't going to talk about, but we should, is how, how does this, the Bible speak to our current moment where we find ourselves now? Um, I would love, I haven't heard you talk about, you know, mm -hmm. this moment where we're at on any podcast or anything. I would love to hear kind of how you're processing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I would love to just let you, just release you to talk about where the Bible came from um, mm -hmm. and kind of morph that into how it comes to us. Sure. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, ha happy to. So yeah, you sent me these kind of three questions. The first two were kind of what we were going to focus on, or what I was going to focus on when I came down, if I had come down. Um, where did the Bible come from? What does it mean to say the Bible's authoritative for a group of people? And then how, what, how does the Bible speak to people and us like in a moment like right now? Um, so obviously each one of those is, you could just go for a very long time, but yeah. I find, um, especially uh, having worked on these Bible project videos, there's a lot of value in trying to boil things down to their essence in, in a simple, concise way, just to get the essence of something. So I've been actually working on these questions in a way of my whole adult life as a follower of Jesus. Um, so first let's start with where the Bible came from. I mean, this, this is so big and complex, um, but I think there are some a, a pretty sim some simple like key points to, to grasp where the Bible came from. So let's first, let's just start with what seems too basic, but I'm certain that it's not. So first of all, what is it? So we're talking about, um, you know, you go to the store and uh, you pick up uh, a piece of technology called a codex. Um, and then we're so inundated with this, we don't even realize that this was like an innovative invention <laughs> about 2000 years ago, uh, because pretty much all communication text technology 
before that point had been scr uh, scrolls um, or uh, uh, clay or wax or wooden tablets. Um, but this, with this thing, you can like get things on both sides and then collect together these things called folios inside and glue them all together. And you can get more text in one of these than anything that had ever been invented before. So we pick up one of these at the store and it has, let's say it's a Protestant Christian Bible. Uh, it's going to have, it looks like one thing. Uh, but then you go to the table contents and you realize, oh, it's 66 different things with an introduction and then a table of weights and measures, measures <laughs> at the back, you know, and, uh, uh, which nobody ever uses. I don't know, but anyway. And maps. So, so it's a collection. That's the first basic point. It's actually a collection of works. Um, and there's, uh, specifically, there's two collections. There's the New Testament, the post-Jesus, the Jesus and post-Jesus part. And then there's um, what's called the Old Testament. I prefer to call just the Hebrew scriptures, um, which is the pre-Jesus part. Um, but the center of it all, at least in the, of the Christian Bible, is Jesus. Um, it's a collection of scrolls that claim, at least Jesus thought, and talked about it as telling one unified story. All these different texts are unified as one story leading up to Jesus, explaining who he is and why. Why did you need somebody like Jesus to come do what he did? Uh, and then everything after that is who is Jesus? What did he do? And what significance does it have for anybody, everybody coming after that? That's a very simple way to think about it. So we've got a collection. Um, here's another important fundamental thing about this collection. Um, it was all written by people who come from one family, the family of Abraham, mm, mm. or Israelites, or as they come in the period of Jesus to be called um, uh, Jews. So that's really important. Um, it, was, uh, it was all written in the language of this family, which is either Hebrew or Aramaic, and then in the Jesus part, the language of Alexander the Great. Um, in Greek. So, but the fact that it comes from this family is crucially important because there, here we get into what, not just what is the Bible and where did it come from, but what is it about? Mm -hmm. Know what it's about is, it, is at the same time to talk about what, where it came from. So essentially these collections of texts come from this family because this family believes that God, the God of the universe chose this particular family to be the vehicle of his work on behalf of all people in all nations and people of all time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that itself is kind of uncomfortable, especially for modern Westerners, because we're for about sure. liberty and equality, you know, <laughs> and uh, for us, fair is everybody getting the same. And for God to choose one family of all the nations to be the conduit of his work in the world and, and for this book to be a product of that work that God was doing with the family of Abraham, you know, I, this taken me a long time to acclimate to that. Mm. And it's, mm. it's still kind of is a mystery to me in many ways. Um, but essentially here's, so the Bible comes out of the story of God's history with this family. Um, God chose um, this guy, Abraham, and said, I'm going to restore blessing and life and goodness to all of the families, but I'm going to do it through your family. This happens on page 12 of the first book in uh, of the Bible. Um, and it turns out that these, this family that God has chosen is just as screwed up as everybody else. 
Um, but nonetheless, they're God's people. And so um, what God keeps doing is rescuing and having to deliver these people because either they are violent, stupid, selfish people or the people around them are, and it creates all these messes. And so this is interesting. The first story where you hear about the writing of the Bible comes 67 chapters into the story. Isn't that interesting? interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't say on page one, like, hey, reader, here I am writing this. Somebody. It's, uh, so it's not until you're in Exodus chapter 17. And it's a story about how God rescued this family um, from a group of desert raiders called the Amalekites who are going to try and kill them. And um, God delivers them. This really amazing story. Moses is holding a staff and his hands are raised. And as long as his hands are raised, the, the Israelites are winning. It's mm -hmm. kind of a strange story. Um, Super weird. But after they are rescued, uh, it's the first mention where God asks somebody to write something down. And Moses writes down the story of this rescue. It's a rescue narrative to, so that it could be remembered. Um, just a few chapters later, after the rescue, uh, God leads all these people to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he essentially invites the people that he just rescued from the Amalekites and then also out of slavery in Egypt. That's kind of a famous story, Exodus. And um, he, he invites all the people essentially to get married to him. God invites people to marry him. I love this that. This thing called a covenant. Yeah. Um, and wow. this brings us to the second mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. And it's where Moses goes up to a mountain and um, God says he wants to enter a covenant relationship with these people so that they can become what he calls a kingdom of priests, which is back to that idea that he's going to use this one family to, to mediate or represent mm -hmm. him to all of the other nations. So he, they're going to become a whole nation of priests. And priests are people who represent people to God and represent God to people. A whole family of people doing that. And so... Moses starts writing down what essentially Christians call these the laws of the Old Testament. But what they are in the context of the story is they're, the, they're like terms of a marriage covenant. They're the, some people do this when they get married. Most people don't. Most people just utter vows when they get married to each other. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what um, is the second mention of the writing of the Bible is it's about stating the, the vows, the commitments that God and the people are going to keep with each other. Like I for you, you for me. Yeah. And then get really, really specific. Like, um, you know, like, Hey, if you see your neighbor's donkey wandering in a field, <laughs> like don't, uh, don't just let it go. Like go get it for your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, so how they relate to each other will become a mirror of how they relate to God. And that's a part of how they represent him to the nations. And so actually in these two first two mentions of the writing the Bible in the Bible, you have the meaning of the Bible already. Mm. Mm. It's a story of how God is on a mission to rescue all humanity um, by rescuing and working through one particular family. Family. That's the rescue story from writing down when they get rescued in the desert. And then what happens at the mountain with the covenant gives us another kind of perspective on the meaning of the Bible. It embodies a covenant. It's a covenant document. It's a document and a story that invites a group of people into a, a personal marriage relationship with God. Hmm. And here we get almost to the next question, 
though we don't have to go there right now, but uh, just saying it kind of flows into the next question of what, when we talk about the Bible's being authoritative, we're talking about the kind of authority that covenant vows have at a marriage ceremony. So when I got married, that's very helpful. I um, said I would like do a bunch of things. Yeah. You know, and they were pretty open-ended like, you know, um, we actually wrote our own vows, but it was, you know, I had the same basic stuff. I'll love you, protect you, support you, sickness and health, all this. Um, but in that moment, those words become an authority. They're vows. And I'm going to change my behavior <laughs> accordingly. And she said she would change her behavior. And so it's in a, that kind of context that all of the first laws, we call them laws. Um, the biblical authors call them instruction or statutes or wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, they're ways that God invites people um, to become new and different kinds of humans that will represent him to the world. Mm-hmm. And so essentially the rest of the, the writing of the Bible is just getting started in those mm-hmm. couple stories. But the meaning of all of these flow, really flows out of that. All of these books are either telling the narrative, continuing the story, um, and the story goes that the Israelites fail. They break the, the marriage vows. They end up under foreign occupation and in exile. And that's when Jesus comes into the story, where he comes uh, to be not just the true uh, Israelite, but to be the, the true human partner that mm. God created us all to be, that, but that we failed to be. And so in the story of Jesus, he actually becomes the first actual human. <laughs> in a way, you That's know, amazing. yeah. And yeah. Uh, behold the man, he does his thing, but he doesn't write anything. He's just like telling these amazing stories and teachings. Yeah. Um, it's these group of people that he deputizes called apostles. And they go on to write the stories about him, of what they experienced when they're with him. They write letters to these spreading communities of Jesus that are spreading throughout the world in the first century. And, there, and that's where the New Testament comes. But essentially, the whole thing is telling a story about a people that God's inviting into a marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, every book of the Bible finds its kind of origin somewhere in that matrix right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I, to me, that's been helpful. Very. Over time. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I have a question that comes to mind, even in conversations with folks that are really trying to figure out how to reconcile what they experience in culture mm-hmm. with the commands of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, because you mentioned, you know, there's a command to go get your neighbor's donkey. There are yeah. other, there are yeah. other commands that are, that feel even weirder, you know, um, like, totally. That's like, right. like boiling the goat next to the donkey in the mom's milk yeah. <laughs> is illegal and yes. stuff. And yes. those somehow are part of the marriage covenant. That like yes, yeah, what is it yeah. still? Is it not? There's that whole continuity piece that be, it ends up being a lot, a lot. It consumes a lot of modern conversations around authority. Yeah, that's right. Yep, so, T- totally. Um, I, you know, I'm actually breaking one of those commands right now because I'm wearing a shirt made of two different kinds of material, cotton <laughs> and polyester, <laughs> and that, that's one of the laws in Leviticus: don't wear clothes made out of two. Uh, different kinds of fabric. So, okay, so here um, we're kind of shading into the second question then. Yes. What do we mean when we say the Bible is authoritative? But it's inseparable from the first question, which is 
What is the Bible and where did it come from? So it's a narrative about how God has been at work through a group of people throughout different periods of history leading up to Jesus and then flowing out of Jesus out into our world. So one way to think about that is our, our paradigms for what the Bible is uh, preload us with assumptions about what to do with it or what we should try and get out of it. And um, our culture, especially uh, modern Western Protestant culture, has overwhelmingly defined the Bible as either uh, like a behavior manual dropped out of heaven that tells you the right things to think or do so that you can go to a good place after you die. Um, or it's a kind of an inspirational collection of one-liners you know, <laughs> that you meditate on for about 10 minutes before you start your day or at the end of the day and that kind of thing. Um, the problem is that neither of those paradigms actually reckons with what how the Bible presents itself, hmm. which is one unified story about God working through a people through really different points in their history. And so in the same way that um, most people don't, I think, read the, the narrative, famous story about the flood with Noah, and there's a long paragraph where God tells Noah to build the ark, and there's like measurements given and stuff like that. Um, I'm pretty sure that nobody reading that story finishes the story and walks away and says, you know what I'm supposed to go do now <laughs> is go build a boat. In my... Some have tried. Yeah, and some have done this, but you some get my recently, point. Yeah, totally. you know, like, it's like, we know that, oh, it's a narrative. That's an example of God asking somebody at that moment in the story to be faithful to him. And they did that thing. But that's a narrative to me not telling me to do the thing that they did necessarily, but to yeah. understand what that meant for them. And then what does it mean for me to do that in my context? So um, there's a whole bunch of things that God asks all the, first, like the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Um, every, they're going around building altars everywhere and worshiping God at places where, you know, God appears to them. But then once they become a nation, and they're in a land, God says, yes, don't do that anymore. <laughs> You're all going to worship now at this place called the temple. And then they get a whole bunch of laws relating to life as a network of tribal farming communities in the land. Mm -hmm. And there's 613 of them <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right? in, in the first few books of the Bible. And all these laws are addressed to an ancient Iron Age people group living in tribal farms in a hill country today we call Israel-Palestine. And the laws are all dialed into that very specific context. Um, but once the people of Israel get exiled from that land, once they're under foreign occupation, they can't actually obey those laws as stated anymore. Yeah. They find new ways to um, obey the point or the meaning or the ethical value set under the laws. And this is what the books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, are all about. They're reinventing what it means to be faithful to God. When you get to the Jesus movement, wow. it's, it's the same thing happening. Jesus is, uh, in his famous teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking the heartbeat of what that covenant was all about. And he has, you know, all these famous, you have heard it said, you know, um, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. But then the way he unpacks that, he starts talking about deep level character value issues about the heart, contempt, yeah and so on. 
And the last step of it is once the church, um, once the Jesus movement becomes multi-ethnic and international, there's a whole chapter in the book of Acts about how the apostles are like, hey, that thing that God told our family to do with all those laws, we hear the Holy Spirit saying that most of those laws are not relevant for non-Jewish followers of Jesus anymore. They wow. have wisdom yeah, yeah. to teach them, but they don't have to do them as stated because those laws were given to our family at a, at a past part of the story. So that's, this is all so important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Super important. Super important. What it means is you can't just cherry pick things out of context in the story and just plop them down. You always have to first honor where they occur in the moment of the story. But then also we have to ask ourselves, at what moment are we within the story? So we're in this moment of the story that comes after the gift of Jesus' spirit to his followers um, in a multi-ethnic, international, spreading context. And this is the moment that the apostles, that Jesus commissioned the apostles to give us guidance. And so we have these 21 letters in the New Testament. But they are also addressed to communities of people living in first century Greek and Roman cities. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a good point, too. We're in so then, First Corinthians where he's telling women to totally. pray, let, let them pray with their heads covered. Totally. That's like, right. Do, like, do not restrict them if they want to. That's right. And depending on which angle you come from, you can, you can read. If you're not uh, careful, yeah. if you're not actually listening to the culture, you're reading whatever you want into that. Totally. Actually, First Corinthians is perfect because it, Paul spent a year and a half with these people. And any letter you write to somebody you know that well, you're leaving out all kinds of context because you don't need to say it. It's a letter to them. Yeah. And so 1 Corinthians uh, has so many passages that beg so many questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that assume knowledge of some cultural thing or some prehistory or something else going on in the city or there in the church that Paul never says. And so this is such a perfect example where we have to honor that that letter was one of the ways that the Holy Spirit spoke to a specific group of people. But we looking in can glean, I think, divine wisdom and guidance for our own communities. But what we first have to see was what, what was being addressed in that specific moment. And so every group of followers of Jesus has already been doing this throughout history. We just usually aren't very aware that we are doing it. Um, that we're doing this kind of move of translation. I see, yes. Getting to the, you know, what some people call the spirit of the law. Or, mm -hmm. But, um, but it's, it's built in to the narrative. If God's going to reveal himself in history and work with people as hi human history develops, um, what he's asking people to do depends on the context as you, as you go through. And, and the problem is that every context is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. We're not first century Rome, but we're also not 21st century India, mm -hmm. or we're not 21st century South Korea. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems to me this is why um, the role of the Holy Spirit working through a community to give discernment on what it looks like for us to live out um, the heartbeat of the, the ethic of Jesus in our context, in our day. I mean, there's no way, there's no, you can't get around it. That's, yeah. that's what, 
that's what it means for the Bible to be authoritative. Yes. What we really mean is, what do we mean when we say, how is the Bible authoritative? What we mean is, how is my covenant with Jesus as one of his followers, how is that going to shape my behavior in my context in light of what the whole biblical story has been doing? How is the spirit guiding me and my community to embody um, Jesus in, in my specific setting? Um, oh, so good. So, I, don't, I don't know. For me, that's a helpful way to, to reframe it. Um, there's one scholar who's, who's um, been really helpful to me, um, Scott McKnight, mm-hmm. wrote a little fun uh, short paperback book called The Blue Parakeet mm-hmm. um, that is a great entry point into this whole question. So glad you recommended that book. Yeah, it's really great. So I I think this is a good moment. We're halfway through this uh, recording. Again, thanks, Tim, for uh, speaking into the life of our church. Uh, I want to remind everyone who's listening, uh, there is a Q&A feature. If you click down there, you can ask questions. And I have it set so that any questions can be upvoted by the rest of the participants. Mm -hmm. So if we have time by the end of this, if you want to like dig any deeper into the implications of what uh, Tim is saying here, which are vast, then um, feel free to ask some questions. I, um, I have one more question about what, what you were just saying. So you have this, this narrative arc of scripture that flows through the Hebrew scriptures out of this marriage covenant God desires with his family. And Jesus is the true covenant keeper. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then he, I like that phrase. He deputizes. <laughs> I've never, mm-hmm. never heard that phrase used for how Jesus commissioned apostles, mm-hmm. but he deputized, like he puts his badge on their shirt. Yeah, that's right. And he's like, now you carry my, yep. you carry my thing out into the town. In, in a way, it's a deputy. A, another repetition of what happened at Mount Sinai when God asked the family to become a kingdom of priests, representatives. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Here. Yes, so the very, apostles very yeah, are, are like representing Jesus. Yeah, and, um, and so what happens when you have conflicting ideas of what the ethic of Jesus might look like mm-hmm. from community to community in like a severe category, mm-hmm. like, a big, like a big issue? And there are two communities dying for, willing to yeah. die for their interpretation of this huge ethic. Yep. Whether it's something as massive and heated as gender and sexuality or it's infant baptism versus mm-hmm. whatever. Like, wh- where do you go mm-hmm. as, like, the the one tether we can all agree on? Because um, I've heard some say, you know, Jesus was also just a man of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, And I think that misses... That misses, I think, what the whole story was about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he's not only a man of his day. There's mm-hmm. a tether where he exists. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I would wonder, like, how, you know, how does the whole story fold in for communities that might be looking to find agreement and unity, gospel unity? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. You know, that has been a foundational question from the first generation where it was a bunch of Messianic Jews in Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, and the way that they resolved their first major, major disagreement uh, was, I alluded to it earlier in Acts 15, where the leaders of the church got together. They debated for days, apparently, with Bibles open. Uh, and they uh, emerged from that with a decision. But it was a decision that not everyone went in thinking was the right decision. 
And we're not told about the, 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 the dissenters after it. I'm sure there were some, you know, or who didn't agree, but this is the decision that the Holy Spirit led our group to. So it's been inherent within the Jesus community. If God's committed to ruling the world through human partners, how those human partners live out as his representatives, uh, it, it's going to involve discernment and wisdom, disagreement, and finding unity. Uh, and uh, I don't know any other way around it. So um, if you're a Catholic or if you're a part of the Orthodox tradition, these problems have been solved for you. It's <laughs> um, true, and actually. I, and, and it's in a way that actually, um, if you're a Protestant, you solve it a different way, but that different way opens up a bunch of problems too. So here's what I mean. Um, in Orthodox and Catholic tradition, what they've uh, come to embrace is one particular group or person in office called the papacy <laughs> or the pope. Um, and they become the safeguard of the right interpretation of the scriptures and as the ones who define the way that we live out faithfulness to Jesus. And throughout history, right, that leadership has adapted and introduced changes and so on. Yeah. If you're Protestants, um, you know, the Protestant pr principle is the Bible. <laughs> yeah, Bible. yeah. Um, and I think there's something really important to that. I'm a Protestant, and the, the, the ability of the Bible to constantly speak new, fresh words that correct, instruct, and guide us into new territory. But what do you do when we disagree about the Bible? And I, there's nothing for it, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, so a, a gift that Gary Brashears, my theological mentor, and uh, and yours, was, um, and, and this isn't his idea. It's a pretty old. It's, it's just it's there's what's at the core of one. If you lose this particular thing, you're not really trying to represent Jesus anymore. You're you're on you're on a different train. So there is a historical agreed upon core. To that yeah. of a belief set and even an ethical value set um it's embodied in these things called creeds um there's these early creeds and um i think there's really something to that yeah um, and that defines what you could call a first tier and then you know there are differing tiers below that of like hey we disagree about this but we're still brothers and sisters in the messiah it's going to be hard for us to worship together yeah because we're going to run a community totally differently so maybe we should not be in the same community but we are in unity and some things you're in the same church community and you disagree about but you shouldn't part ways over that it's just not yeah that's good so there are these tiers but people disagree about what belongs to what tier and right totally <laughs> yeah well i mean i I am very excited to hear you speak into the third question. At the beginning of this hour, we talked about, um, I haven't heard you, I haven't heard anything um, from you or mm -hmm. many. We're still processing this moment we're in. Yes. We're still processing. Yes. People are locked in. People can't gather. Um, and the very real threat of plague is just encroaching upon us um, yeah. in, in ways we never imagined, just yeah, in the movie, yeah. in the movies only, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I would love to hear, it looks like there's already, a, there's even a question here mm. in the Q&A. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, how do, how do the scriptures, in your view, how do they speak to the current moment we're in? Um, yeah, yep. COVID-19, yeah. coronavirus, Tim Mackey. 
Oh. Bible, <laughs> go. Yeah, I don't know, man. These are not very uh, well-formed thoughts, but it's it is like like everybody in the world. It's pretty much been on the forefront or back burner every waking moment, you know, for the last few weeks. Um, well, uh, one of the most important kind of orientations as you open page one of the Bible is the concept of creation and reality in the Bible. And I'm not trying to get unnecessarily philosophical here. Uh, to me, this is really helpful. Um, I, West, modern Westerners, we think of reality or something being created and we think about its physical substance. There's nothing and then there's physical substance. And this is not how the biblical authors thought about reality. Biblical authors um, use the word creation and make to describe um, things being brought into an ordered functional whole. Um, and, and that's what Genesis 1 is about, and that's a whole thing that we could talk about. But the, the beginning sentences of the Bible, the pre-creation state of the Bible in Genesis 1 verse 2 is, is imagery of a dark, um, chaotic, disordered ocean, <laughs> right? And, and it was formless and void. Darkness was over the land. The Spirit of God is hovering over the deep, abysmal waters. Um, and these are well-known images in the Bible and in ancient Near East about disorder, non-order, and chaos. Um, so <laughs> fundamental to the story of the Bible is God is on a mission to um, bring an ordered functional creation with humans as his images ruling over it with his wisdom and love and power um, and to spread the order and beauty that he that he began in Genesis 1. But that disorder and darkness is always, it's always there. And it's always threatening. Um, this is why the ocean is so imposing in the Bible. It's why on the last page of the Bible, it says that in the new creation, there's no more ocean. <laughs> and, and surfers around the world are like, what? No, no. Right. But it's a metaphor. It's the, the ocean is a fundamental image of something that humans can't tame and master. And that's still true for us. We float on top of it, but we don't master it at all. And so as you go throughout the Bible, there's kind of a, a, a growing collection of images or types of human experiences that embody this threat of disorder and chaos that threatens the, the, the ordered realm that God wants to help us build together where, where we can all flourish together. And so a sickness and plague is one of those. Um, there's actually about five Hebrew words for plague and sickness. Um, and they're talked a lot about in the prophets, um, especially Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, but also in some of those marriage laws from the Sinai Covenant. And um, pandemic, what we call pandemics, are described in the prophets. Ezekiel describes them as, as kind of like the flood or as dark, chaotic waters that are threatening to overtake the ordered, the ordered world. And to me, that imagery has been helpful. I don't know if it's helpful to anybody else, um, but it's, um, it, it's kind of like in the book of Job where God points out there's this giant sea creature <laughs> called Leviathan that's super dangerous and will kill you, will bite your arm off. And it's not, it's not that it's evil, it's just, uh, it, it represents the threat of disorder and danger in our world on this side of the new creation. 
And um, it seems to me that's, uh, that's what we're experiencing. The other part of it too, is that in the prophets, especially Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, plagues um, can be the result of God allowing them to come in particular upon his own people. Um, but when God allows a plague to come, it's to bring uh, down corrupt, arrogant empires that have idolized their own economy, military, and power and name in the world. Whether it's Babylon, whether it's Israel that has become a new Babylon, or whether it's Egypt and Pharaoh. Those are the three empires that get brought down and plagues are one of the things that brings them down. So I've been thinking a lot about that. <laughs> yeah. Because, play, because we're experiencing what most, almost every generation of humans before us has experienced. Mm -hmm. The way sickness can spread on a mass level. And what we thought was so secure and stable in the world is, is a house of cards. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. and so uh, what I'm not saying is, there. I think COVID-19 is a plague sent by God. Oh, yeah, fully didn't hear that. <laughs> but uh, it, it seems to me that we, it, the biblical narrative wants me to look at a moment like this as, is, there, is it possible that there is a Babylon being humbled right now? Hmm. And, you know, who, who's suffering the most from this? There is that percentage of people who are like gasping for breath right now in hospitals all around the world. There's that layer of people. Who else is suffering? Um, the vast majority, if you just want to go numerically, it's people who are in economically vulnerable situations. Because once our house of cards fall of the global westernized economy, who, who are not the winners in our economy? It's very clear right now. It's the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, who have a very difficult time getting access to education. Or Are you with me? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. And so I've been thinking mostly about that about yeah. how this pandemic is exposing an underbelly to the global economy. And, you know, our, the question is, are we going to learn from that? And as we go on, whatever it means to go on from this, what does it mean to take the story and the values of the kingdom of God and to say, well, let's imagine an economy where, where COVID-19 hits and there's a lot less fallout for vulnerable people. Mm. Like how, I don't know. That was long and rambling. I said it was kind no. of unformed, but these are the things that I've been thinking about. No, that was great. I mean, from one thing that's been striking me is how much almost for us in, in the abundance culture of the West, those, those of us that have been, even been pastors in churches of mm. abundance cultures, mm. uh, we are now shifting our playbook, maybe keeping the first two or three pages of our playbook. And then the, the last mm. 40 pages have to be rewritten overnight mm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. because... Um, because we are, we are now in a place where, yeah, um, the world is watching and looking for, for grain. And that, that passage from Joseph where Joseph is the spirit filled mm -hmm. servant of yes. pagan yeah, Egypt. Totally. Yeah, that's right. he's, he's the spirit filled servant of, of Pharaoh and Pharaoh, the pagan identified the, the breath of God Yeah, no, this, yeah, <laughs> in, in, in this person who is, who is right in the, in the moment, um, seven years of abundance had passed and he had droll wherewithal, the mm. spiritual attunement, the indwelling presence of God to be able to name it mm. 
and and bring the hungry what they needed. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I just I just mm. sense I sense there's this there's this sense in which the Bible finally makes sense to us in the West mm. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Like we can read the Bible and finally make huh. sense of it huh. In, huh. in a dimension that we couldn't before in wow. that way. Like, what does it mean to be the spirit filled mm. provider? Filled with, we're providing the grain more than the sands of the sea, mm-hmm. the grain, <laughs> which is the language of the promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the world can come. The world knows that we have bread. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that look like? What you just said, like a like, what does a world look like mm-hmm. where COVID nineteen ravages and there are more people who are, who were hungry that are filled, yeah, rather than rather than fall off the edge of the economy. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's good. I yeah, I haven't uh, thought about how the Joseph story provides an analogy that way, but that's rich. Um, that's worth uh, that's worth pondering. I think I that's know. right because um, fam- famines are another one of these images of a, a creation gone awry, a creation that doesn't produce enough. If Eden is like this ideal of what God wants, right, for our world. Um, and the whole image of the Garden of Eden is abundance. Yeah. That you have to, you know, you're working. They're called to work in the garden, but it's in partnership, in harmony with creation. And so famines are on on analogy to what plagues are, on analogy to what earthquakes are, to what wild animals are. Mm-hmm. They're, they're creation gone berserk in a way that hurts us instead of works with us. And so... Um, yeah, what are what are what are the yeah, that's good. The Joseph story. That's all I can get in I can't get it out of my heart for the I last bet. two weeks. Yeah, I bet. Um hmm. just thinking of pay, the pagan rulers of the empire going, mm-hmm. there's no one in the land like that. Someone mm-hmm. that has the breath of Elohim. Mm-hmm. Someone that has God's breath inside. Um anyways, there's a there's another question here that's pretty pretty poignant. Yeah. Um sure. yeah. Uh Farzad's question, how how for the analytical types who are really wrestling, maybe mm. questioning things oh, they sure. just things they just assumed in their young churchy childhood or whatever, how do how do you really reconcile human text with fully mm. inspired? Yeah, text? yeah. What does it mean to say the Bible is written by people uh, and also divinely inspired? Um, which we can talk about that word. So let's talk about that word. Um, so inspiration is a word used once in the Bible, <laughs> in Paul's uh, um, second letter to Timothy, to describe the scriptures. Um, he says all scripture is, um, it's a Greek compound word um, that has God and then the word spirit, God spirited. Um, so it's a result of the work of God's spirit. Um, what, what does that mean? Well, let's think, actually, Joseph is the first spirit-filled person in the story of the Bible. Interesting. Um, it happens in, in Genesis, um, in the chapters 40 and so on. And then he sets the paradigm for what a truly human, spirit-filled human looks like. And what, that, what it means to say Joseph is filled with the Spirit so that what he is doing is what God is doing in the world. It doesn't describe him going into a trance. He doesn't lose any of his faculties. <laughs> if anything, he becomes more and he, he possesses his faculties even more. And then he becomes a wise administrator of the government. <laughs> He's the first inspired person, right? Yeah, wow. So in, in other words, um, 
inspiration doesn't, to say the Bible's inspired does not minimize um, or cancel the human agency in the origins of the Bible. It, it's a different, because we think divine and human, they're different agencies. If, it's, if the Bible's divine, then we need to somehow minimize its humanness. Or if it's human, well, somehow that threatens its, its divine status. And what we just need to scrap those, it's those categories as oppositions that are, are the problem here. Hmm. Page one tells us that God's way of working in the, this world and the story is through images, divine images. So humans who are the image and representation of God in the world, so that what humans are doing is what God is doing in the world. That's the, it sets the fundamental category, it seems to me at least. And so what you see in the Joseph story, what you see in the prophets, are people who are speaking under the power of the spirit to into their time and place. And this then becomes a, a meta category for the whole of these texts. So I, I, um, I would encourage us to think not in oppositional terms, but in union terms of union. It, the human history of the Bible is its Holy Spirit history and vice versa. Um, so how this addresses issues of inerrancy, that's a whole, to be honest, that's a whole other rabbit hole because um, the inerrancy debates are essentially consumed with one element of how the Bible communicates and that's its claim to be telling a story about history. And I think it's really important <laughs> um, that it's uh, offering a faithful representation of telling the truth about human history. Um, but what often happens is interpretation of that story becomes bogged down in debates about whether or not something happened in the precise way that it's described as happening in a narrative. And nine times out of 10, we just, we miss the point entirely. Um, that's an important question, but it's only one part of what it means to read the story and understand it. So it's really hard to do justice to that debate in this yeah. kind of context, yeah. to be honest with you. What you really need is a couple hours to unpack that issue, to really do it justice. But for me, just that category of the Holy Spirit, history of the Bible, its divine status is its human status. They work together. Uh, to me, has been a transformative kind of paradigm for, for rethinking all those questions. Yeah. Yeah, that is helpful. It is a longer conversation. This next um, question might be longer as well. Uh, it's very nuanced, it seems. Um, you've referenced the Protestant tradition. You've allied yourself with it, Tim. This oh. is a very personal question. <laughs> yeah, I, so. yeah, I uh, mean, I, I, Martin I, Luther, I'm, I'm not Catholic or Orthodox, so I, I'm, I guess I'm yeah. Protestant. <laughs> so Luther writes yeah. in the Babylon Captivity, he writes um, that um, the friars were reading the apostles as not universal, but mm. particular. Mm -hmm. And he continues, well, if we admit that any epistle or any part of Paul doesn't apply universally, then the whole authority of Paul falls to the ground. So mm -hmm. Luther made this broad statement apparently. Mm -hmm. So, and the question goes on, it seems there's this strong literary critical framework. Many Protestant theologians are championing. Um, where's the balance mm -hmm. of reading the books of scripture, mm -hmm. with like literary schemes and letting that speak versus, mm -hmm. I wonder if yeah. there's a dichotomy here that you can help me understand or answer. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so um, I think what, um, 
Paul knew that he was writing to one particular group of people. You know, it's actually interesting, and you probably already covered this, in the opening sentence of his letter to 1 Corinthians, for example, um, he says, you know, uh, you know, Paul, here, I'll just, I'll pull it up real quick because it's helpful. Um, he says, Paul, you know, to the church in Corinth, um, and he says, I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth, um, along with everybody in every place who calls on the name of the Lord. <laughs> so it's as if Paul him is aware mm. even because he, he called, he asked people to um, spread his letters. Like he told the people in Colossae to read the letter that he wrote to Laodicea and to get the letter he wrote from them. So even though he knew he was writing into a particular moment, he also had a sense that what he was saying was the voice of Jesus to these communities that would be valuable for many communities to hear. So I think the way Paul himself is working that out is it's only when we understand what a particular piece of scripture is doing in its context, that is the way that it addresses the universal church. Yeah, it's, it's both. It's, yeah, it, and they're not in, in tension. But what it means is I'm not, all I'm saying when it's not universal is it's not universal in its uh, addressee. I wasn't standing at Mount Sinai. So yeah. the laws of Sinai are not to me. Yeah. But the, the Hebrew scriptures are for me because I'm a follower of Israel's Messiah. <laughs> and Israel, Israel's Messianic people is the audience of the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. In the same way, um, I'm not a member of the Church of Corinth, but I'm a follower of Jesus, and so these offer apostolic guidance to me by me getting to watch how an apostle guided the people of Corinth. And But that it does change the dynamic, I think. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, Martin Luther said a lot of things, and so... <laughs> I'm never quite sure to know when I read a quote, I'm like, but he probably said something different than that four pages later. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how to bring Luther into this. He's a complicated figure himself, you know? Yes. I think Nate's question is very similar to the one you just asked. How do you mm. practically read a promise and hold context intention? Mm. That's basically what you just addressed, which is great. Yeah. Uh, we, the Bible is written not to everyone, but for everyone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think um, when to recognize something as scripture means that it transcends that first context and now has the ability to speak to the universal church. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, the question is, how does it do that? Um, and what I'm trying to name is that the, the behavior manual dropped on golden tablets out of the sky. I open it up. God says it. I believe it. I'm going to do it. That's it actually is problematic, and yes. nobody actually actually does that consistently. Yeah, everybody's, that's a good point. Everybody's picking and choosing according to some paradigm, and I just want to encourage us to bring our paradigms to the surface so we can poke and kind of probe at them. Yes, amazing. I think this last question can end up being really encouraging way to end this conversation. Mm. Um, Mathieu Ruffet, the Frenchman, he mm. uh, he asks, how can a Christian grasp the purpose and meaning of Scripture? submit to its authority, follow the way of Jesus without a good understanding of the languages mm -hmm. or the context or the whole, mm -hmm. the whole world it comes to us from. It seems mm -hmm. to me without it, the church mm -hmm. is prone to so many errors that can have mm -hmm. negative impact mm -hmm. on faithful Christians. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, 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 th I think this is why um, 
Peter and Paul developed this robust imagery of the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ. Oh, so good. Why And why else are teachers, nerds, and then pastors um, an important part of that? It, it seems to me the whole point is that there are going to be some people who need to do all of that work on behalf of the many and then communicate it. And so that we can, I, I, I don't know, I, I, that's my, that, I'm not trying to be trite in addressing the question. I agree. The, the, and especially the more cultural distance as time goes on, we have from the origins of the Bible, we need more than ever, uh, you know, our, our Bible nerds. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean everybody has to be a nerd at that level. That, yeah. would, that would trust. It's actually impossible. The body of Christ couldn't do what it's designed to do if everybody did that. But Well, I'm thankful that you're one of the nerds. I, well, I'm happily one of the one of the nerds. Yeah, but, uh, I also, you know, it, it's also it's only one role in the body of Christ. There Amen. Are many many other roles that are vitally important that I wouldn't have the first clue of how how to go do that thing. Uh, well, just as a sign off, Kristen's question I think is appropriate. Um, just mm. any resources that you can point people to um, mm. that mm. would br- help bridge that gap um, between me and my Bible. How do I read it right? Yeah, the hopelessness that that can <laughs> create. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. like, no, you don't have to be hopeless, and you don't have to, you know, yep. do years of languages. Here's a resource. Yep, totally. Uh, so I'm going to recommend just a one-stop shopping center for both testaments. And they're both big, but, you know, they're, they're one-stop shopping centers. One is an Old Testament scholar named John Walton, um, mm. who's done a lot on cultural backgrounds. But he has a really accessible volume. You don't have to know any Bible language or history or anything. It's just called The Old Testament Today. And it's a great entry point. Old Testament um, Today. Today. And then for the New Testament, there's another big fat volume by a New Testament scholar, um, named Tom Wright or N.T. Wright, and it's called The New Testament in Its World. Ooh, I went to his like show on that book. Like he came and spoke in San Diego. Uh, and, oh, I'm sure and he I did. Yeah, signed, totally. a, signed a bunch of those giant books. Yeah. If you have those two on your shelves, you will have a first place to turn to to get um, an introduction to any part of the Bible and help you understand the basic issues, cultural background, language, history for every single section of the Bible. That'd be a great place. Perfect. Perfect. Tim, you are a gift to the church. Your team is amazing. I see, I see Danny, uh, one of your own teammates there. (laughs) He he wants to know who your favorite coworker is. (laughs) Oh, it's gotta be a guy named Danny Dancio. Yeah. (laughs) So, So your team is amazing. Um, just say hi to the Portland family from San Diego. Absolutely. Um, sorry, I didn't get to enjoy the San Diego sun on vacation. Yeah, it's okay. Instead, I'm um, working in our guest room in our basement. Yes. <laughs> there are two beds in your basement. That's true. Well, when, when uh, Jessica's side of the family comes to visit, we need lots of beds. So. And the last, the most important, not maybe not, I don't want to be that sarcastic, but a very pressing question. How, how's the Mackey family doing on toilet paper inventory? Yeah, um, uh, we're good. We're, okay. we're, we're, we're fine. Yeah, we're fine. Awesome. I thought that and was you an know, appropriate... I read this interesting article that said this could be the opportunity for America to convert to bidet toilets. Because mm. all you need is a spray bottle. 
If you run out, just all you need is a spray bottle and you'll be even more clean than you would be with toilet paper. I should run a poll right here, uh, <laughs> add a question. Uh, are bidets totes inappropriate? <laughs> I think they are. Yeah. Um, um, well, thanks. I'm happy to yep. do this. I'm sad we couldn't, you know, hang out in person and meet all the people, you know. That we're yeah. Well, one day, one year. One day. We'll do it time. Yeah. May the Lord bless and keep the Mackey household. Yeah, you guys yeah, are awesome. Me too, Evan, for you and your clan too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for um, taking out the hour from your day for us. Yep. Have yeah. an amazing, have an amazing day. Sounds good. All right, bye everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks for coming. This will be on the podcast later. Park Hill Church signing off. <laughs>